Chapter Ten, Part Two of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter Ten Theology and Theologians. Part Two. A notable offshoot of the Syrian school was Junilius, an African who held high office in the imperial palace at Constantinople. He, at the urgent request of Primacius of Adrumetum, who visited Constantinople in consequence of some of the disputes of the sixth century, wrote a book which, under the title of Aristituta Regularia Divinas Legis, is in fact an introduction to Holy Scripture founded on one by Paul, a Persian trained at Nisbis. We have in this work a reflection of the views of Theodore of Mopsuestia as to the relative value of the books of the Holy Scripture. Primatius himself also published comments on St. Paul's epistles and on the Apocalypse, drawn from the works of earlier expositors. The old characteristics of Alexandria, the Alexandria of Clement and Origen, were the eager pursuit of learning, the application of pagan culture and philosophy to the discussion of the Christian faith, and the allegorical interpretation of scripture. And these characteristics were still found in many of the prominent Alexandrians of a subsequent period. This school of thought, however, gradually died out in the course of the fourth century, and was succeeded by a race of theologians who attached very much more importance to tradition and the authority of the church. These were opposed to their brethren at Antioch in that they tended to dwell on the divine rather than the human nature of the incarnate word. Eusebius of Caesarea may be said to represent the older school, Athanasius the transition, while Cyril is the most conspicuous example of the new. In the fourth century the man who, though not an Alexandrian by birth, best represents the learning, the breadth, the general culture of the Alexandrian school, is certainly Eusebius of Caesarea. At Caesarea in Palestine he passed his youth. There he listened to the exposition of Dorotheus. There he reveled with the delight of a bookworm in the splendid library of the rich presbyter Pamphilus. So conscious was he of his obligations to this munificent friend that he chose to be distinguished as Pamphilus's Eusebius. What he was, Pamphilus had made him. He saw in the persecution under Diocletian the churches leveled with the ground, the holy books committed to the flames, the clergy hunted hither and thither, mid the jeers and insults of the mob. Pamphilus himself died a martyr's death. Eusebius, in later times, was accused of having escaped death by sacrificing. There seems, however, to be no evidence of this, and in the fierce disputes of the fourth century, any testimony which existed would certainly have been produced. It was probably not long after the restoration of peace to the church that Eusebius was chosen bishop of Caesarea, and in that office, though an effort was made to translate him to a more important see, he died. At the Council of Nicaea he played a prominent part. His learning and ability no doubt entitled him to distinction, but the position which he held was probably due rather to his intimacy with the emperor than to his own excellent qualities. He was the clerk of the imperial closet, he was the interpreter, the chaplain, the confessor of Constantine. 
nor do these cordial relations with his imperial friend appear to have suffered any interruption. He had, in fact, that union of pliancy and ability which fitted him to become the confidant of a great man who on some points needed informing and guiding. Eusebius's relations with the emperor and the church must have brought upon him very onerous and anxious duties, yet he found time for much study and incessant literary productiveness. He wrote history, he defended Christianity against Jews and Gentiles, he discussed dogma, he interpreted scripture, he delivered orations, and he had a large correspondence. In fact, he must have been one of the most unwearied workers that the world has seen. He is best known by his ecclesiastical history, which shows an extraordinary amount of reading, and the general sincerity and good faith of which can scarcely be doubted. In spite of defects which are patent to a later time, he had probably in his own age no superior in the critical faculty any more than in multifarious learning and in knowledge of mankind. No ancient writer is so absolutely indispensable to the student. In the ecclesiastical history, in the chronicle, and in the preparation, he has preserved for us a vast amount of early literature in three several spheres, which would otherwise have been irretrievably lost. He had the instinct of genius for choosing themes which were of permanent and not merely temporary interest. Standing as he did between the old world of paganism and the new world of Christianity, he saw the greatness of the crisis, he seized the opportunity, he, and he only, preserved the past in all its phases, in history, in doctrine, in criticism, even in topography, for the instruction of the future. This is his real title to greatness. Writing while paganism was still a living force, he gave much of his thought and toil to the vindication of Christianity. Not only in his directly apologetic works, but everywhere, his mind turns to the defense of the faith. A true Alexandrian, he sought out the elements of truth in pre-existing philosophical systems or popular religions, and thus obtaining a foothold, he worked onward in his assault on paganism. It was the only method which could achieve success. His works were after his death fiercely attacked and defended, but probably the words of Pope Pelagius II, Holy Church weigheth the hearts of her faithful ones with kindness rather than their words with rigor, express the general sentiment of the learned in the church towards one of the ablest of her sons. At an early date he was numbered among the saints, and May 30 assigned to his commemoration. But the most impressive figure among the Alexandrias is no doubt Athanasius. This great man was born in Alexandria of Christian parents towards the end of the third century. Even as a child, sportively imitating the ceremonies of the church, he attracted the notice of the bishop of that city, Alexander, who received him into his own house and caused him to receive the best education of his time. His theological studies led him to ponder especially on the great mystery of the relation of the Father to the Son and to mankind. Drawn afterwards by the spirit of asceticism into the wilderness, he passed some time in retirement with the famous hermit St. Anthony, and never ceased to admire and recommend the ascetic life. On his return to his native city, Bishop Alexander ordained him deacon and adopted him as a confidential adviser and secretary. In his earliest writings he entered the lists as the champion of Christianity against the assaults of educated paganism, 
but the publication in 320 of the specious errors of arius made the contest against arianism in defense of a true deity of the son the work of his life in this no pressure of theologians of a broader school no frowns of high-placed tyranny no suffering or banishment could bend his intrepid spirit in 328 he was chosen on the death of his friend alexander to be bishop of alexandria and in that see after attempts at deposition by the imperial power and repeated banishment he died no calumny was able to shake the affection which his flock bore him whenever he was able to return the city rejoiced when he died arianism was mainly in consequence of his efforts drawing near extinction he had sometimes stood almost alone against the world but in the end he triumphed in spite of his wandering and persecuted life he left behind numerous works of the highest value he introduced into the defense of christianity against unbelievers a more systematic method than that of the earlier apologists showing from the principles of reason which all acknowledged both the truth of the revelation of god in the word and the absurdity of the pagan objections to it he treated in dogmatic and controversial treatises of the great doctrines of the Incarnation and the Holy Trinity. He made valuable contributions to the history of his own time. He interpreted scripture. He exhorted men to holiness of life. And in all his writings he appears as a true Alexandrian, a disciple of Clement and Origen. It is the constant presence of the creative word in the world that he has made which gives it its law and its harmony and where the word is there is also the father we are not to regard the universe as something apart and aloof from god but as maintained by a constant exertion of the divine power god never leaves man his last great work even when fallen from his first estate man too is renewed by the word few men have combined in the same degree as anesthesius the active and the contemplative faculties capable as he was of regarding fixedly the highest mysteries of the godhead he showed great skill and dexterity in the practical conduct of affairs he knew how to avoid snares and to seize opportunities if the perversity of those who attempted by sophistry to draw aside the faithful from the right way sometimes provoked him to vehemence of expression with fair and reasonable opponents he was calm and charitable of all the greek fathers he is the least diffuse the most simple, and consequently the most forcible. He writes as one too much in earnest to be anxious about expression. It was not without reason that his contemporaries regarded him as the model bishop, the standard of orthodoxy, the trumpet that gave no uncertain sound, and this reputation lives even to this day. The man who perhaps best maintained in Alexandria itself the method of origin was Didymus, who, though blind from his childhood, made himself acquainted with all the science accessible to him, and acquired a wonderful knowledge of Holy Scripture. Appointed by Athanasius to take charge of the catechetical school, he was the last teacher who maintained something of its ancient fame, and taught such men as Jerome and Rufinus. After his death about 395 it sank into obscurity. Of his numerous exegetical works, once in high repute, only a small portion remains, but some of his other works are preserved, either in the original or in a Latin version. The earnest worker, seeking knowledge without the aid of sight, and clinging to the best traditions of his school, even when they had fallen under suspicion, 
is a venerable and pathetic figure. The two writers who bear the name of Apollinaris or Apollinarius are so intimately connected that, in their purely literary labors, it is hardly possible to separate them. The elder was born at Alexandria, but is found, about the year 335, at Laodicea, where he was a presbyter. Here he married and had a son of the same name, afterwards Bishop of Laodicea. Both father and son were on intimate terms with the heathen rhetoricians Libanius and Epiphanius of Petra, whose lectures they attended, and from whom they no doubt derived some culture. When Julian interdicted the reading of pagan authors in Christian schools, an attempt was made to produce a Christian literature which might take their place. The father and son, working together, turned the early portion of the biblical story into a Homeric poem in twenty-four books, and produced lyrics, tragedies, and comedies, after the manner of Pindar, Euripides, and Menander. Even the writings of the New Testament were brought into the form of Platonic dialogues, the Psalms turned into Greek hexameters, by this unwearied pair. It cannot, however, be said that those productions of this kind which remain to us show any poetical genius, or were ever likely to supersede the writers whom they imitated or plagiarized. They were only produced to supply a special want, and when the occasion for them passed away they ceased to be read. It was the younger Apollinaris who in the latter part of the fourth century propounded the peculiar opinions by which his name came to be too well known. One of the most learned men of the fourth century was Epiphanius, who, born of Hebrew parents in Palestine about the year 315, early devoted himself to the ascetic life and founded, while still a young man, a monastery near Eleutheropolis in his native country. In middle life he was called to the Episcopal See of Salamis, the modern Constantia, in Cyprus, and was conspicuous from that time forth as an ardent promoter of monasticism and a leading opponent of the more philosophical treatment of the Christian faith which originated, he believed, with Origen. It is therefore not surprising that he plunged eagerly into the originistic controversy, in which he displayed more learning than judgment. He died in the year 403, leaving behind him several writings, of which by far the most important is the Panarian, a treatise against the heresies, which is of the highest value to the historian of the church. The writer is indeed credulous and uncritical, but he has preserved many fragments of lost works, and many traditions which would otherwise have perished. His hot temper frequently led him astray, but he was all his life a faithful defender of the orthodox belief. His own age regarded him as a saint. Next to Athanasius in importance among Greek theologians are no doubt the great Cappadocians, Basil with his friend Gregory of Nazianzus and his brother Gregory of Nyssa. Basil was born about the year 330 at Caesarea in Cappadocia. His father, of the same name, was a Christian, a man of considerable wealth and a much-respected citizen. His mother, Amelia, was the daughter of a martyr, so that the future bishop was brought up in a family where the memory of the early struggles of the church was still lively, and where his youthful imagination would be stimulated by hearing of the constancy of those who gave their lives for the faith. The results show how deep an impression was made upon the children. Basil was educated first in Caesarea, then in Constantinople, perhaps under Libanius, and finally in Athens, 
where the literary culture was as yet but slightly tinged with Christianity, under the famous sophist Himerius and others. Here a common devotion to the studies of the place and to the faith of Christ drew him into still closer friendship with Gregory, afterwards known as Nazianzen, whom he already knew as a fellow countryman. Here the two young men saw the future emperor Julian, already perhaps pondering on the restoration of the paganism which he loved. On Basil's return home he was seized with a passion for the monastic life to which he was to give so powerful an impulse, and declined the opportunities for worldly advancement which his position, his ability, and his education offered him. After a period of retirement he began to work of the ministry as a reader in the church of his native Caesarea. Hitherto he had taken no part in the dogmatic contests which were waved around him. Now he came in contact with the Homoiosian party, but soon threw in his lot with those who maintained the formula of Nicaea, and became one of their chief leaders in the later conflicts which led to the Council of Constantinople and the extinction of Arianism. In the year 370 he was chosen bishop of Caesarea, where nine years later he died, having done a great work in a life which did not pass its fiftieth year. His theology was mainly founded on the study of Origen, from whose works he made, with the help of his friend Gregory, a series of characteristic extracts, still preserved, under the title of Philokalia. The influence of Origen is manifest in Basil's famous work on the six days of creation, the Hexameron, though the tendency to allegory appears here in a less extravagant form than in Origen. But however Basil may have leaned towards the theology and exegesis of Origen, he was, in all the essential points of Christian doctrine, truly Athanasian. No one saw more clearly the real nature of the points in dispute between the Arians and their opponents, as appears in his books against Eunomius and on the Holy Spirit. His letters, too, which have a pleasant classical tinge, are of the highest interest. St. Basil was, as we shall presently see, an ardent promoter of monasticism, but he had none of the littleness which sometimes clings to an ascetic. No one among the fathers gives a stronger impression of largeness and fairness of mind, so that he might seem to have been divinely sent to heal the wounds of an age of controversy. His blameless life, his beneficence, his weight of character, his learning and clearness of thought all contributed to this end. It was not without reason that after ages called him the great. With Basil is naturally coupled his lifelong friend Gregory Nassianzen, whose father, also named Gregory, after belonging in early life to the theistic sect called Hypsis Tari, had been brought into the church by the influence of his devout wife Nana, and in the end became bishop of Nazianzus. His son, after his years of study in Athens, for a while shared Basil's monastic retirement. When he returned to the world he was ordained, not without reluctance, to the priesthood by his father, and a few years later was sent by Basil as bishop to a little town called Sesima. There he found himself out of place, and was glad to escape from it, and become coadjutor to his aged father at Nazianzus. On his death he declined to become his successor and went into retirement, until, after the death of the Emperor Yalans, the Orthodox community, which still maintained itself at Constantinople, chose him for their bishop. There he employed his active mind and well-trained eloquence in defending the doctrines of the Nicene Fathers, 
and gained the name of Theologus, the asserter of the divinity of the Logos. He was listened to by crowds, on whom he did not fail to impress the need of love of God and a holy life, as well as of a right belief. Theodosius transferred him and his followers to the principal church in Constantinople, from which the Arian bishop was expelled, and at the Synod of Constantinople in the year 381, he was formally chosen as bishop of that city. This election was, however, by many, regarded as invalid, and it was not long before Gregory, weary of the strife of tongues and longing for rest, resigned his see and passed the remainder of his life in quiet in his native city or in the neighboring Arianzas. He died about the year 389. There may be seen in Gregory's varied and troubled life a struggle between the shrinking of a cultivated and sensitive man from the rudeness of ecclesiastical conflict and the sense of duty, quickened perhaps by the consciousness of power, which impelled him to engage in it. If the time had permitted it, he would perhaps have led his life in cot or learned shade. But he lived in an age when no good man could be a mere spectator, and, with whatever shrinking, he came forward to defend the truth. He left behind him discourses, letters, and poems. It is evident that he, like Basil, had a real love for the old classic literature, yet he thought that the true philosophy was to be found in monastic retreat from the world. He assailed Julian in two orations which he called Pasquinades. He defended himself before the people of Nessianzus for his reluctance to undertake the priesthood. He preached frequently on festivals, but his most famous sermons were those in which he maintained the divinity of the Son and the Holy Spirit, a subject to which indeed he constantly recurs. His letters, which are written in a clear and simple style, often supply valuable material for history. His poems, especially that which contains a half-satirical account of his own life, are of some value for their matter, if not for their poetry. Generally, we may say that while Gregory sometimes, when his feelings are roused, rises to true eloquence, his manner is too often artificial, self-conscious, and overloaded with illusions, which are to us obscure. In originality and force of reasoning, he is not to be compared with Athanasius, or even with Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory of Nyssa was a younger brother of Basil, who about the year 371 sent him, though married, to preside as bishop over the little town of Nyssa in Cappadocia. In the persecution which befell the Nicene party in the reign of Valens, he was deposed by a synod at the instigation of Demosthenes, the governor of Cappadocia, for various crimes falsely alleged against him, and withdrew into solitude. He returned, however, after the death of Valens, and was received with great joy by the community. Henceforth he was a prominent figure in the church, and at Constantinople in the year 381 pronounced the funeral oration over the remains of Miletius who died there, and a few years later over those of the young Pulcheria, daughter of Theodosius I, and the empress Placilla. He was present at a council in Constantinople in the year 394, and probably died soon after. Gregory of Nyssa is the most philosophical, and the most influenced by the theology of origin, of the Cappadocian trio. But, however speculative, he was as firm as Athanasius himself in his defense of the orthodox doctrine of the Holy Trinity, and stood by the side of his brother Basil in his contest against heretical dogma. He also wrote on the soul and the resurrection, and a 
catechetic discourse, intended to show by what methods Jews, Gentiles, and heretics might best be brought to the knowledge of the truth. His disposition seems to have been gentle and amiable, and no one of the fathers stands more clear of all suspicion of meanness or underhanded dealing. It was not without reason that Vincentius of Larens pronounced him a worthy brother of St. Basil, and that the Second Council of Nicaea quoted him as of the highest authority. Isidore, head of the monastery near the Pelusiote mouth of the Nile, stands out as one who in an age of fierce controversy never became a mere partisan. While on the whole siding with Cyril of Alexandria, he never lent himself to his violent measures. While he did not wholly reject allegorical interpretation, he yet valued highly the historical method of the school of Antioch. His numerous letters, some of which give spiritual counsel, while others discuss matters of interpretation, are of great value for the history of his time. He lived so ascetically that, says Evagrius, he passed to the angelic life while yet on earth. A remarkable product of the pagan schools of Alexandria is Synesius, born about the year 370 of a good family at Cyrene in the Egyptian Pentapolis, he studied Neoplatonism under Hypatia, the lady in the doctor's gown, of whom to the last he spoke with affection as his intellectual mother. He afterward visited Athens only to be disillusioned. It had nothing but great memories, he says. The real focus of philosophy was found in Alexandria. From about the year 400, he spent his time principally on his estate at Gyrene, leading the life of a cultivated country gentleman, engaged in agriculture and field sports. He also kept up his philosophic studies, though in this he felt himself isolated in the midst of people who hardly knew whether they were not living in the reign of Agamemnon. It was on another visit to Alexandria that he married a Christian wife, a circumstance which no doubt aided his conversion to Christianity, the history of which is obscure. He was living at Cyrene when, in the year 409, the people oppressed by a brutal governor begged him, their most influential neighbor, to be their bishop and protector. He was extremely reluctant to undertake this office. Not only was he married and unwilling to separate from his wife, but his views in several points were, he felt, hardly to be reconciled with the current theology of the time, and he was conscious that it would be difficult for him to adopt the decorous life of a bishop. Still, his love for his people and the persuasion of Theophilus of Alexandria prevailed. He was consecrated to the see of Ptolemais, and discharged his duty faithfully in a time of great difficulty and distress. He is supposed to have died about the year 414, bowed down by the weight of public and private cares. With him comes to an end the history of the ancient Christianity of the Libyan Pentapolis. Synesius does not belong to the first order of minds, but he is a remarkable example of one whose philosophical principles were colored and ennobled rather than displaced by Christianity and he gives a clearer and purer reflection of his school than a stronger character would have done. Nemesius, bishop of Emesa in Syria, is also an instance of a Christianized philosopher. Although, so far as is known, he was a perfectly orthodox teacher, he seems to have turned his attention mainly to the great questions which interest all thoughtful men from age to age, the nature of man, his relation to the universe, the immortality of the soul, the reconciliation of the freedom of the will with the providence and omnipotence of God. 
His treatise on the nature of man, still extant, shows him to have studied human physiology as well as psychology, and is an important contribution to philosophical theory. Cyril, the famous Archbishop of Alexandria, is the chief representative of an Alexandrian school very different from that which derived its first impulse from Origen. He was the nephew and successor of Bishop Theophilus, by whom he had been brought up, and whom in character he much resembled. His election to the sea was not effected without violence, and he had not long occupied it when a quarrel arose between the archbishop and the Jews, which led to his expelling them from the city at the head of a furious mob. Some of Cyril's partisans pelted Orestes, the prefect of the city, with stones, conduct which, rightly or wrongly, brought discredit on their bishop. Cyril entered with great zeal and vigor into the controversies of his time, and it is indeed as a very able controversial leader and writer that he is chiefly known. His best friends will scarcely deny that he was too vehement and imperious to be altogether wise, or even just. But his faults were not inconsistent with great and heroic virtues, faith, firmness, intrepidity, fortitude, endurance, perseverance. We see in the writings which bear the name of Dionysius the Areopagite a Neoplatonic system disguised under terms taken from the language of the Church. God is absolute and unconditioned being. To him no definition, no description, hardly any epithet can properly apply. He is beyond all time and space. He is the source of all existence. But he condescends to develop himself in a series of beings, a heavenly and an earthly hierarchy, through whom, on the one hand, he reveals himself, so far as may be, to man, and on the other enables man to ascend towards the being of beings himself. At the head of the heavenly hierarchy stands the Holy Trinity. The earthly hierarchy, through the sacraments or mysteries of the Church, provides men with the means of purification and of rising towards God. These remarkable treatises were first cited, so far as we know, by the Monophysites at a conference in Constantinople in the 6th century, and were probably written by some disciple of Proclus of Constantinople in the previous generation. It is, however, possible that the main portions of them were written anonymously at an earlier date, perhaps in the 4th century, and were interpolated at the beginning of the 6th by some controversialist, with the view of making them pass for the work of Dionysius. At the conference their spuriousness was at once recognized, but nevertheless from the beginning of the 7th century to the days of Laurentius Valla in the 15th, they were in the highest repute, and their account of the ranks and degrees of angels was generally accepted. Their teaching also largely influenced medieval theory about the sacraments of the Church. During the period when Christian doctrine was still in some respects undefined, the philosophy of Plato, a seeker rather than a dogmatist, had been a dominant influence in the formation of theology. But when theology became more definite, the logical system of Aristotle was found better adapted for the use of theologians. The influence of Aristotelian modes of thought is found in Leontius of Byzantium, a Scythian monk, who was conspicuous in controversy in the 6th century and even more in Johannes Philopinus, the labor-lover, who took the opposite side in the divisions of Justinian's time. End of chapter 10, part 2